Pastor Kent is down in Houston at the uh, M3 conference at Lakewood Church, so uh, he's uh, been uh, working on some stuff down there, and we'll have some exciting things to announce when he gets back, but keep him in, his, in your prayers. He's going to take a few days off this week, which uh, he really needs to do. Everybody needs time off, right? And Pastor, I don't know anybody who works more and harder than Pastor Kent, so he deserves a, a longer break than a few days. So anyway, keep him in your prayers as he's resting for a few days. And uh, let's go ahead and move into our tithes and offerings. Uh, this is the part of the service where we worship God with our giving. Has God been good to anybody's finances here? He's been good to ours. I know I've, as I've been getting all the tax documents and stuff, I always just take, like taking that time to kind of reflect and see what God's done in our, during the year, and it's always fun to see. And one thing I was praying about this morning is I, I know a lot of people who are looking for jobs or they're trying to figure out how to do better in their job, and one of the things that I've noticed is uh, generosity, how we perform at work is connected to our generosity. And uh, a lot of people may think, eh, I don't know about that. But I've, I've, the older I get, the more people I observe, the more situations I've had the opportunity to observe, I can tell you there's a direct connection between somebody's success at work and how generous they are. Uh, because the guy that's generous is the guy that's going to say, hey, boss, I know that uh, you wanted this report before Friday, and I decided to stay a couple extra hours to get it done so you'd be successful. And any time you make your boss successful, they're going to notice. And so uh, be generous with your boss, be generous at your work, and uh, God will, will help you prosper. So let's pray, and then the ushers will receive the offering. Lord, we're so thankful for the resources that you entrust us with. We're so thankful for your faithfulness. God, I thank you for the faithfulness of our assembly and helping meet the needs of this, this assembly, and then the, the helping meet the needs of all of the, the, the churches and ministries that we support. And so, God, I pray a special blessing on our, our, our congregation today, God. I pray for the businesses that are represented here, for the companies that are represented here. I believe everywhere that Christians go, life should be better and things should be better. And so, Lord, I pray this week as we go out in our workplaces, I pray that the companies that we work for will be more successful because we're there, because we're making good, righteous choices. And so, Father, I bless everybody here today as in their, their endeavors and in their work. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, since Pastor Kent's gone, you're stuck with me, and so I apologize for that. Um, but I, Pastor Kent usually has comics and whatnot, and I'm not a very good comic guy because the only comic I ever liked was The Far Side, and he stopped making them years ago. So some of you probably don't even know what The Far Side is. But um, anyway, uh, so I thought I would tell a, a humiliating story from my uh, blooper reel, which there are many of. But uh, I was traveling back with Pastor Kent from Burkina Faso, and uh, the way the flights work there is you always leave on a red-eye flight. So you leave Burkina Faso around 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night, right, Teresa? They're brutal. And you typically will stop in another country like Ivory Coast or Niger or something like that. So you, you, you get on the plane, you fly for an hour or so, they land, people get off, people get on, and you just stay there in your groggy state of mind. Well, that happened to me. We stopped in the Ivory Coast, and I woke up and needed to use the toilet, so I got up, went to the, the toilet room, and um, I did my business, and then as I, was, I went to leave, the door wouldn't open. And so I was like, oh, man, you've got to be kidding me. So I start, you know, like, you know, trying to get the door to open, you know, moving the, 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 the doorknob and all that stuff, and it would not work. And so then I start kind of banging lightly because, you know, you, I'm really humiliated by this time. So I kind of like, you know, tapping the door. Then I'm getting a little more anxious, so I start banging on the door. And then I hear the flight attendant in French saying something, and because of my poor French, I have no idea what she's telling me to do. And uh, so then... I, I finally, she must have realized that I was English only, and she said, unlock the door. 
And I wish I could tell you that this plane was like a foreign plane that had like unusual door locks that were really difficult to find out. That wasn't the case. It was a normal airplane. And um, what had happened was I went in to use the restroom and forgot to lock the door. So then when I went to leave the restroom, I actually locked it. And so I guess I should be thankful that first no one walked in while I was doing my business. And then secondly, that I was able to finally get out. But anyway... Our topic today is about surrender, and I had to surrender to this door, and uh, finally got out of there. So. so today, our topic, great joy is found when we give control of our lives over to God. And I think in our culture, there's a lot of pressure on us to not give control over to God. We have pressure from social media. We have pressure from media. We have pressure from TV. All of these different things are telling us Run your life how you want it. Do what makes, makes you happy. Do what gives you the best feeling. Uh, all these messages are constantly being thrown at us. But the cry of the gospel is saying, surrender everything. And it's hard to believe because we're like, are you sure, Lord? You're telling me that, you know, I, everybody else is saying, if I buy this new car, if I obtain uh, success at work, if I ta- obtain notoriety, I'll be happy. And you're telling me that if I surrender everything, I'm going to be filled with joy, it's totally contrary to what, what, what we're told every day. But that's exactly what God is saying to us, I think, is that we need to surrender to him. And when we do, we experience amazing joy. Choosing to partner with God produces great joy. Hebrews 12, 2, it talks about Jesus and how as he was being taken towards the cross, he, was, uh, he counted it as joy. And as I was praying about that, I was like, Lord, I don't think I'm ready to, I don't think I'm ready for a cross where I'm at the state where I'm ready to, or can have joy in that experience. But I don't, I don't need faith for that yet. Hopefully someday if that happens, I will have the faith for it. But I think in all of our situations, whatever trials, whatever uh, your life might be like, God is calling to us that we need to have joy in, in that surrender. Many of us do the opposite. Instead of trusting God, we put our trust in our wisdom, we put our trust in our knowledge, we put our trust in our abilities. But that gets tiring after a while. You can only go on so long in your own strength. And at some point, you have to surrender control of your life to God. It all comes back to surrender. And so today, as we, as we talk and as we converse, I want to uh, focus on one of the uh, passages in Scripture, uh, looking at the life of, of King Saul. So as you recall, King Saul was the first king of Israel. So Israel had been led by God and uh, prophets and judges uh, since they had left Egypt. And finally, or I shouldn't say finally, but they, they got tired of not having someone that Samuel was getting close to the end of his life. And the, the, the people of Israel were getting tired of not having a king. They wanted to be like the other countries. And so God resisted and said, you know, I don't think you really want that. And uh, they said, no, no, we really do. And they, he said, no, I don't think you do. But finally, he said, you know, if you want to have a king, I'll give you a king. And then you can deal with the consequences of that. So that's what happened. So uh, Samuel anointed uh, King Saul as king. And the Bible tells us that, that uh, King Saul was the tallest, most handsome uh, person in the whole country. And it's hard to imagine what that's like, but I think there's a lesson for us because oftentimes we look at who's uh, the most, uh, 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 you know, who looks the best, who has the most money, who has the most toys. We look at all of those things as an indicator of one's success, but uh, this might be a reminder to us that's not the right metrics we should be looking at. We should be looking at the heart. And so anyway, God gave uh, Saul as king of, put Saul as king over of the country of Israel. 
And so then uh, we're going to kind of fast forward to the end of his life and, and come back. But it, uh, in 1 Chronicles 10, uh, 13 and 14, it says... And by the way, the uh, early service, they told me that my, I talk too fast and my voice is too high. So I don't know what to tell you guys. You're just stuck. So <laughs> I'll try to talk in a lower voice. But anyway, First uh, Chronicles 10, 13 through 14. It says, so Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. And so the first thing that we can take away from, from this, this illustration is that Saul was unfaithful to the, to the Lord. Um, in 1 Samuel 13, verse 8, it says, He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michal, Mishmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. And what we see here is kind of a juvenile. I mean, this is a grown man. This is a move my kids do. You know, you, you ask them to do something and they come back at you with, well, God, Dad, I didn't do that, but it was because of this other noble reason that I didn't do that. Do you, anybody with kids ever have that thing? Teresa, yeah. And, uh, um, <clears throat> and uh, this is a grown man and he's giving a childish excuse for, for what he did. And uh, the, the, the lesson here is that God is asking us to be faithful. Saul was unfaithful to the Lord. He said, he, he tried to do things in his own wisdom, and he said, you know, I, I think I've got this figured out better than you do, and, uh, you know, you didn't show up at the time that I thought you were going to show up, and so I decided to go ahead and, and offer the sacrifice. And how many times have we done that? You know, God puts us in a place of waiting, or he puts us somewhere that we feel uncomfortable, or he's pushing, out, pushing us out in somewhere where we're not comfortable. How often do we say, you know, God, I think your timing here isn't quite on, and so then we try to do things in our own strength. We, we say, you know, I'm going to push forward and, 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 and go forward with this, even though I think that your timing is different. And I'm the worst at this because, you know, I hate waiting. Uh, you can ask my wife when we go places and, you know, they tell us to be there at seven. I hate like doctor's offices. I don't know what it is with them, but they always are late. And uh, I hate that. And so it's very easy, I think, for us to like, we want to we wanna push forward on our own timing when sometimes the message to us is we need to stop and wait. And so it's important for us to discern the will of the Lord, to discern what God is asking each one of us to do and find out, if, is this the time to go forward? Is this the time to stay? And God is faithful. He'll show us what it is. But we need to be faithful in obeying when, it, when he gives us a command. So Saul was unfaithful to the Lord. The next thing we see here is that he did not keep the commands of the Lord. Let's turn to 1 Samuel uh, 15. And in verse 8, it says, And he took a, 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 
Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Sorry, I started at the wrong place. Oh, I was looking at the wrong, sorry. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So here God is telling Saul, giving Saul very clear directions on what he should do. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And so what we see here is God had given them a, a, a very clear command of what they should do. When they took over the Amalekites, they were supposed to destroy everything. He didn't leave it open-ended for them to discern what to destroy. He said, destroy everything. But instead, Saul, when he got after the battle, he said, you know, we're going to keep some of this stuff because we can use it. And I can kind of relate. I'm a pragmatic guy. You know, I don't like to waste things. And so you see all these perfectly suitable oxen. You see, uh, you know, all these things. And it's, it's easy to say, you know, God, I think, you know, why would, we, why would we get rid of all of these things that we could use elsewhere? You know, uh, we, could, we could do it, all these other things. But the fact was God commanded him to, to destroy it, and he didn't. And so our, our next point here is he did not keep the commands of the Lord. And so we need to take that to, to heart and say, okay, God, what, is, what have you asked us to do? What have you commanded us to do that we're taking, you know, we're, we're, we're adding our own interpretation to what you meant? Um, this is a classic thing that started back in the Garden of Eden. You know, the snake said to Eve, did God really say? And, uh, you know, left it open. And that's exactly what Saul's doing here. Did God really say that we need to destroy all these things? And the answer was, yes, he did. And Saul disobeyed. And so we have to watch when we, we notice those types of things coming into our own hearts. Uh, you know, when we start saying, you know, Lord, you said this, but I'm thinking that this is more right. And we really need to be mindful of that because when we start going off in our own way, it never ends up, it never ends up uh, well. So we should take that to heart. The next thing is uh, Saul did not seek the guidance from the Lord. And so in 1 Samuel 28, uh, verse 3, it says, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to, to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. 
And so here we see that, that Saul didn't get an answer from the Lord, and so then he started seeking answers elsewhere. And I think this is a common thing for us. You know, what's not common is I don't know of anybody that, that has gone to seek out a medium, but I think what we do is we find other things to seek guidance from, or maybe we don't even seek guidance because we get so uh, distracted by all of the things around us that we don't even seek what God's guidance might be for our lives. And so I think it's very important for us to take to heart that, that um, what, 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 what might be coming into our lives that is taking the place of God as far as guidance. I know a lot of Christians who will go to, to non-Christians to get counsel. And for some things, that's fine. You know, if it's about changing your tire or whatever, you know, it's probably totally fine. But there's other things that I think it really matters if who you're seeking counsel from. And we have to be very mindful about the counsel that we're given because as believers, as followers of Christ, we, we follow a totally different paradigm, a totally different value system than what the world uh, follows. And so we have to be careful when we're seeking advice for our lives, when we're seeking guidance from our lives from people who aren't followers of Christ because they, they view the v- world through a totally different lens. And we're not going to berate them because they, we would too if we were out we're apart from Christ. But it's important as believers when we're, we're seeking who we're going to get counsel from, we need to be mindful of the paradigms that, that different people have. And more importantly, I think a lot of us, we just don't seek guidance. You know, our society is filled with, uh, with things that distract us, that can capture our attention. And it's e- I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to spend a whole evening and realize, wow, I spent the whole night flicking through Instagram, and then I watched a few YouTube videos that someone tagged, and then pretty soon the whole evening's gone, and it's like, what do I have to show for my time? And, uh, and I think that's probably the more common thing in America, that we just don't even, aren't mindful of how our time is used. And that time that we really should be seeking, the, seeking guidance from the Lord, we're wasting on, on other things. And I'm not saying all those things are bad. They're fine in the right, the right place. But we need to be mindful of it. And we need to be mindful of who we're getting guidance from and, and that we're asking God for guidance. And so what do we need to do to obtain the great joy that, this, this great joy that God has for us? And so the first thing that we need to do is transfer control of our lives to God. And I think this is the hard one for us because, uh, you know, as Americans, we, we tend to, to look at things like very selfishly, I would say, where we say, okay, God, I'm willing to follow you, but, and then we have a but after that. And we put, I'll follow you if, you know, I get uh, this promotion or if I make this amount of money or if I stay in this city or if I stay in this country or whatever it might be. All of us have different things that, that we cling, cling to for comfort. And so it looks different for all of us. But the fact is, God isn't asking us, for a follow, to, asking us to follow him with a, a, a commitment that's partial. He wants all of our hearts. He wants all of our lives. And he's not satisfied with anything less. And so we have to transfer complete control of our lives over to God. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So when we, when we come to Christ, Christ is in us. We're a new creature. We're a new person. We're a new being. <clears throat> but but uh, that means that to, to have that new being, to have that new person, we have to relinquish full control of our lives over to God. And that's the hard thing. 
you know, I, I, don't, I don't know of any Christian, no matter how old, that doesn't have something that God is still working on them to surrender. I think each of us in our journey, no matter where we're at, there's a, there's a Gethsemane that we have to face. There's trials that we have to face. And each one of those, the call to us is to surrender. But when we surrender, that's when the joy comes. The next thing is we need to ask the Lord for guidance and direction in our lives. Matthew 7, 7 says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. How many times do we just forget to ask? A couple of weeks ago in Sunday school, I, we, were talking and I was, uh, we were talking about visions and dreams. And I realized I never asked the Lord for a vision or a dream before. It was just something I hadn't done. And, uh, I, and then the more I started thinking about it, there's a lot of things I've never really asked outrightly for. I, I know about them. I know, uh, you know, that there's the gifts of the Spirit and all of these things. But many of them I've never asked directly uh, to receive from the Lord. And so the last couple of weeks I've, I've been asking God, you know, if you have a vision or a dream that you want to give to me, uh, you know, I'm willing to receive it. I'm willing to accept it. And uh, I, I think it's kind of funny because it says old men will dream dreams. And I think that's because they fall asleep while they're praying. <laughs> so, um, but anyway... Um, but we should, and I'm doing that too. I fell asleep last night as I was praying and then woke up in the middle of the night and continued. But, um, uh, the, the Bible says we need to ask. And I think a lot of times that we, we just, we don't even think about it for whatever reason. And again, I think we get distracted with the things of this world. And, uh, uh, so, so I encourage you today, if you're, if you're, if you need God's direction on something, ask him. He loves to give direction. He loves to guide our lives. He loves to help us build lives. And when our lives are placed in his hands, we, he creates a masterpiece. The next thing is be faithful to follow the command of, commands of the Lord. Sometimes we'll ask God for, for guidance. We'll ask him for direction. But then when he gives it to us, we ignore what he asks us to do. He calls us to something and we start saying, you know, God, that wasn't part of my contract with you, so I'm not, I'm not going to go there. But that totally defeats the purpose of what we're doing. And so when, when God calls you to do something, be faithful to follow the commands. Be faithful to follow his commands. He doesn't, he's a good God. He doesn't want bad things for you. He doesn't want you to, to be floundering in life. He doesn't want you to be out there uh, without hope, without peace. He wants all of those for you. But in order to get those, we have to surrender to the Lord. The next thing is when God calls, say yes. In 1 Samuel 15, <clears throat> so after Saul's uh, rebellion to God or where he, he disobeyed God as far as what to destroy, and uh, uh, Samuel the prophet came to him and, and um, uh, uh, confronted him on this. And this is the, the, what Samuel said to him. He said, has the, Lord as great has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and the presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And so what we see here is this is his rebuke for, for, for uh, Saul's disobedience. And so how many times has God asked us to do something and we say no? Anybody? I, I have. And it's a, it's a very humbling thing, and it's a very serious thing. It's, it's something we need to take very seriously. When God asks us to do something, you know, we pray about something, we seek his guidance on something, and then when we finally receive it, we're like, well, that wasn't what I had in mind, and so we go our own way. So what's the point of asking in the first place? 
But we have to obey God. We have to say yes. And, you know, there's so much joy when we say yes. When, um, when, uh, when you choose to get married to somebody, when, I'm, when I married Tracy, I didn't say, you know, for better or worse with these stipulations. I said, for better or worse, we're going to stay married for the rest of our lives. And, uh, and it's hard. Some days it's really, really hard. A lot of days it's a lot of fun, and there's so much joy from it. But there are days that are tough. But it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a, a contract that was conditional on anything, and neither is our, is our relationship with the Lord. It's not conditional on God uh, giving us certain things or whatever. It's on, on complete obedience. And so that's, that's what I encourage us to do today is to surrender completely to the Lord. So there's a really cool story. Does anybody here like reading biographies? Okay, a few people. I love biographies. They're, my, they're my, uh, one of my favorite types of reading. And uh, what I found is if I read nonfiction before I go to bed, my mind starts zooming on like, okay, I need to do all these things and change my life and become you know, a better person or whatever. And if I read uh, fiction books when I go to bed, then I'm like caught up in the story and I end up staying up all night reading. But biographies, you know what's going to happen because generally the person's dead. And so you, you can, you know, then you're just like reading the story about what happened. And so I found that biographies just kind of help me go to sleep. And so um, one, of, uh, one of my favorite biographies that I read uh, is called uh, The Boys on, a, on the Boat. And it's the story of the, the rowing team that went to the 1936 Olympics uh, that was in Ger- uh, Germ- uh, Hitler's Germany. And so one of the, 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 the book is about all of the, the eight rowers and the coxswain who was on the boat. But the, um, the, 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 one, the, one of the rower I want to focus on today, his name is Joe Rance. And it says, Joe Rance was raised primarily in a small town 65 miles northwest of Seattle. Rance's mother died when he was three, and his father soon remarried. At age 10, despite being a good-natured, well-behaved boy who was a diligent student in school and who got along well with his his four half-siblings, Joe was exiled from his family's home by his stepmother, who did not want him to live under the same roof as her biological children and share in the family's limited resources. For more than a year, Rance slept in the town's one-room schoolhouse, and he foraged for food by fishing, hunting, and working odd jobs. Eventually, his father insisted that Joe be allowed to return to live with the family. But, age, but at age 15, he returned home from school one afternoon to, to find the family car packed for a move in search of a better life, a relocation for which his stepmother would not allow him to accompany the family nor even disclose the destination. Rance watched the taillights of the car disappear as his father failed to intervene on his behalf leaving the high school sophomore completely on his own. From that moment on, Joe learned to depend only on himself, growing his own produce, trading it for others, and finding a way to go to high school while working any job he could find. Joe's Joe's older brother allowed him to move in with him and his wife to finish his senior year of high school in Seattle. After high school, Joe worked a few jobs to save enough money for college. Finally, he saved enough money and arrived at the University of Washington to major in chemical engineering. Rance's living quarter for his years at the university would be a closet-sized room in the basement of the local YMCA. Unlike many of his well-dressed classmates, he wore the same flannel trousers and faded sweater throughout his college years, a wardrobe that made him the target of taunts from elitists on campus. He heard of the rowing club and went through the rigorous tryout process, becoming a member of the freshman boat. He realized that he had finally found something he wanted to excel in. He wanted to rise through the ranks to junior varsity and varsity 
and to perfect this unwieldy, exceptionally difficult sport. Considering his few mental blocks, he wondered if he would ever make it. He made, finally, he made the freshman rowing team, and a year later, he was selected for the prestigious Varsity 8 boat, a team made up of Depression-era sons of dock workers, loggers, farmers, and manual laborers. One of the reasons Joe Rance eventually became a superb rower is George Pocock. George was an innovative British shell builder who had moved to Seattle and created gorgeous boats with various special woods in which no detail was spared. They were functional art, as perfect as a wooden shell could be. Once other rowing clubs had seen the competition fly in his boats, people from all over the world ordered his shells, and he became known as the best shell builder in the world. His wisdom influenced all the boys, and he took a special interest in Joe. George was a motherless son, and he understood Joe in a special bent for independence and self-reliance. He focused Joe on the necessity of realizing that he had a team around him, a team that he must depend on and harmonize with, no matter how hard he stroked on his own and to his own rhythm. In that way, he broke down Joe's defenses and probably those of other hard-scrabble teammates to help them achieve the best results possible. The crew would go on to beat the best shells from the U.S. and abroad and win the U.S. Olympic trials to qualify as America's representative at the Summer Games in Berlin. On August 14, 1936, in the Olympic eight-man finals held on the Spree River in a Berlin suburb in front of a crowd that included Adolf Hitler, other Nazi officials, and 75,000 German spectators, the U.S. team was on the far side of the wind, they were so uh, far on the, the side near the, 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 the stands that they said that it was so loud that they couldn't even hear the coxswain uh, yelling out the commands to stroke. So the, he had to start hitting the shell of the, 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 the boat. The U.S. team was on the far side. The race started and the U.S. fumbled the start. They didn't hear the, 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 start, uh, the gun shout. So the cheer, cheering from the crowd was so loud they couldn't hear. So the U.S. shell was in last place at the halfway mark of the 2,000-meter race. Rance and his quad cranked its pace from the 32 strokes per minute it had averaged during the first half of the race to an unheard of 44 strokes per minute down the stretch, all the while maintaining perfect synchronicity and avoiding the dreaded race-ending moment when a rower leaves his blade in the water and halts the forward-gliding momentum of the shell. With 200 meters to go, the U.S. passed Hungary. At the 100-meter mark, Switzerland, and at the 50-meter line, Great Britain, They were tied, the U.S., Italy, and Germany. At the finish line, the U.S., Italy, and Germany appeared to be in a dead heat. For several minutes after the race, the judges examined the photographs of the finish. Finally, after a five-minute wait, the crowd quieted as the loudspeakers crackled to life for the announcement of the final results. The U.S., six minutes, 25 25 and four-tenths of a second. Italy, six minutes and 26 seconds. In Germany, six minutes, 26 seconds, and four tenths. Rance and his crewmates had won the gold medal by six tenths of a second and three feet. In the book, it talks about how Joe, he couldn't believe, he kept on fighting his coaches. The coaches would instruct him on how he could uh, row better, how he could improve uh, the, the, the form of his body as he was racing. But because of all of the trauma that he went through as a, as a young man, he, it was very hard for him to trust people. But ima- imagine what would have happened to this race if Joe hadn't learned to trust his teammates, if he hadn't learned to trust the instructions from his coach. 
And I think that's what a lot of us have trouble with. God is instructing us. He's saying, Brian, I want you to do this. I want so many good things for you. But instead, I want to row to my own, my own pace. I want to row to my own beat. And it just doesn't work that way. And so like Joe, we have to submit to our ultim- the ultimate coach's instructions. We have to submit to, to what he knows is best for us. And so I want to tell you a little bit about my story. Um, okay, I said I wouldn't cry because I'm a crier, and I, I don't like that about myself, but I'll try to hold it together. Um, last year was really tough for me. It was probably one of the hardest years of my life. And... Um, all year I was fighting God on something he was calling me to. And all year I kept saying, God, I know you have this call. I know you have this plan. But I think you're wrong. I don't think you have this figured out as good as I do. You're calling me to something that I'm not qualified for. You're calling, calling me to something that uh, you know, I can think of a hundred reasons why you should move this call off my life because I'm not qualified. But God didn't ask me for my opinion on the call he's given to me. God asked me to be obedient and he asked me to be, be faithful. And so a couple of days after Christmas, I was driving to work and I was talking to God and during, I don't know if you recall, but during the Christmas season, uh, Jonathan taught us a song called Awake, I think it's Awaken, something like that, not important. And um, I was listening to that song on my way to work, and uh, I was calling out to God, and I said, God, I don't want to keep living this way. You have to change something. And... Uh, as I was listening to that song, the bridge came on, and it said, the one who holds the stars in the creases of his hands is the one who holds my heart like a mother once held him. The one who knows what lies where space has run its course, embraced the baby's mind, and now I can know my God. The monarch of the stars, the king above all kings, the ruler of my heart, and the savior for my sins, the one who sees what lies in each and every soul embraced our finite eyes, and now we can see our God. And on that day, on my way to work, I said, God, <laughs> you know my soul. You know my weaknesses. You know my strengths. You know that I'm not very good at a lot of things. You know everything that you're dealing with. But you called me, and so I'm going to say yes. It was really, really difficult. I was a total mess by the time I got to my office. My, I just rushed into the elevator, was hoping nobody saw my puffy eyes and, you know, all that stuff. Got up to my office, shut the door, turned, kept the lights off so people wouldn't think I was there, and I just cried. And I said, God, I surrender, whatever you call me to. I've been saying no. I've been uh, 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 giving you the conditions and I'm tired of fighting. I can't do it on my own, so I surrender. And you know what? God changed things like that. It was amazing. Things I'd struggled with for years instantly went away. 
And so my friends today, I want to invite you to surrender to God. He has so many great things for you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. But we have to surrender completely. He doesn't want a part of us. He doesn't want us with conditions. He wants everything. And so this, this, this plays out differently for all of us. I know a, a lot of my friends, they don't have a clear call of what God wants for them. But God has other stuff that he's, he's asked of them. And he wants faithfulness. He wants obedience in those areas. A couple of weeks, or uh, two weeks ago, I was down in Denver. And um, I like to read novels for, for my, my leisure time. I, I really enjoy spy novels. I was telling the Sunday school class last week. I think it's because I wanted to be a spy when I was a kid. And so I lived vicariously through Tom Clancy and Vince Flynn and all these guys. Um, but... The, a, a couple of weeks ago, I was down in Denver, and I, I started reading a new novel, and I just felt the Lord say, you know, I don't want you to read that anymore. I don't want you to read these novels. And I said, you know, I want to read a novel. <laughs> I was tired from flying, and I'm, I want to I want to read a novel, and so I did. And so then last week when I went to teach Sunday school, the Saturday night before Sunday, I was like, nothing was coming. I could nothing was was jiving, nothing was working, and then Sunday morning we were singing that song "Build My Life," and uh, I felt the Lord say, "You know, I asked you earlier this week to give up novels, and I'm not saying this isn't for everybody. This is me, and that you disobeyed." I said, "God, please forgive me. I want to I want to be obedient to you. I want to be obedient to your word." And when I did that, you know, the, the stuff started flowing again. So where was the last time that you said no to God? Did God ask you to do something and you haven't done it yet? Or maybe God has asked you to put something to the side and you haven't done that yet? Where, where are you with God and where, uh, where are you in your, your journey of surrender? Each of us has something to surrender. I don't think that there's any of us that have reached that point where, we don't, where, where God is done working on us. We all have something to surrender. So what does that look like for you today? And so as we close the service... Um, Jonathan's going to lead us in a song. We have uh, Stations of the Cross with communion and sticky notes. We go there and we receive communion and pray. And uh, if you have a prayer request, you want the staff to, to pray with you this week, you can leave it on one of the sticky notes. But I want us to go there and, and remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. when he, he, was, he, he the, Like we said earlier, he, he went with joy to the cross. And so as we go to communion, the Bible says that each time we receive communion, we're supposed to remember the sacrifice that Christ did for us. And so as we go to communion today, I want you to, to, to take a few moments and reflect on the surrender that Christ did. And if Christ can, can handle that, that, that surrender that he did, he was giving up his life, then surely whatever God is asking of us today, we can surrender with great joy just like Jesus did. Let's pray and then go to the crosses to pray. Lord, I thank you for your work in our lives. God, I thank you that you don't leave us the same. I thank you that you're continually trying to, to shape us into your image. And I thank you for your patience with us and your forgiveness. And so, Lord, as we go to the crosses today, we go in great joy, God. God, we, our goal someday is if we ever get to that point of persecution that we're saying, yes, with joy, I'm able to face this, this, this trial. And so, God, we go to the, the crosses today to receive communion and remember what you did for us and the joy that you had in your surrender. And may we be like that. In your name we pray. Amen.